Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, well, good evening, everybody. I'm Bruce Robbie. I'm on the Board of Governors with the Commonwealth Club and also uh, the CEO of Relevant Wealth Advisors. We're one of the sponsors of this event. Thank you for all coming tonight. This is going to be a really exciting event. And so I want to just talk briefly about who's going to be here, and then we're going to get right on with the program. Uh, Tonight's program, Rewilding the American Child, uh, is close to home for me. I was just reading today Candy Crush, which is a very popular video game, uh, Activision Blizzard sells. Uh, The average user spends 38 minutes per day, the average gamer, on Candy Crush. Uh, So it makes you think about the addiction kids get and... I've got a nine-year-old son and then older kids that didn't quite have this problem, but we're all a little addicted to our thing, whether it's your phone, your candy crush, whatever the game is. It's exciting to think about rewiring our kids and making them think about what we probably grew up with was more outside time and less scheduled time. Uh, Tonight, we've got three great guests on our panel. I want to introduce them briefly. Michael Roberts is here. He's the executive editor from Outside Magazine, lives in San Anselmo. Uh, Florence Williams is here, and she's got a really powerful book out. And then Dr. Rosani's here. She's from uh, here from UCSF, the Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland. And uh, she's going to kind of chime in with kind of some of the medical perspective of this, this exciting topic. So with that, I'm going to sit down. Thank you very much. Michael. Um. So uh, thank you so much for that introduction, and, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for reaching out to me and Outside Magazine to put this together. Uh, thank all of you for, for coming to hear what I think is a really important conversation, and thanks very, very much to Florence and Nushin for taking time out of their schedule to be a part of this. It's, it's really an honor for me to be next to them, standing now, seating in a moment, um, to have this discussion. Uh, just a note on format, the reason I'm standing now, we're going to each talk a little bit by ourselves before we get into a discussion, and then before we turn over to, I hope, have a good bit of time to get a lot of questions from you. So don't worry, you'll get your chance, and we're, we're expecting a lot from the Commonwealth Club crowd here. Um, I do want to start by noting that this topic of rewilding our children it's a professional interest of me with Outside, but it is always also very much a personal interest. Um, as he noted there, I have three children. Uh, my wife, Leslie, and I are here. We have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old, all boys. Um, this is like date night for us, sweetie. Like, this is like, this is like, this is kind of like, we got out. This is a big deal. Um, so this is what we do on date night. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in Berkeley and San Francisco, and it was a dream of mine always as I got older to come back and to live in Marin and to give my kids this incredible outdoor childhood. And to some degree, that's happened, but I will say that somewhere inside, I, I struggle still with feeling that I'm giving them the kind of wild experience I dreamed of for them and that I think I had to some degree myself. And so the question is, why is that? Why, when this, this access is right here, why would it be so difficult? And when we started this issue, and, and personally, I started wondering about this, and I can look back at a little bit of the history of outside and try to understand what that tells us 
about why this might be. So Outside was founded in 1977. And if you look back at those early issues, you can tell because it's awesome pictures of like bearded dudes with bandanas and no shirts, big backpacks. Maybe they're rowing a, a, a raft down a river. Seemed great. Um, and this was around the birth of the outdoor industry and all this kind of came out the larger counter-cultural movement of the decades before. Uh, Patagonia and the North Face were taken off in the 70s. And something else very interesting happened in the 1970s. Our federal government, our Congress, passed something called the National Environmental Education Act. And this was born out of the idea that our government believed that our children deserved to learn about the environment through outdoor experiences. 70s were awesome. I mean, we knew that. Right, but you look back at that, you're like, "Wow, seventies were let's go seventies." Um, if you fast forward into the nineties for outside, what um, you saw was a, a magazine that had become a real national voice, and the one that was defined by misadventure. We published Into the Wild, Into Thin Air, The Perfect Storm. Basically, we told really great stories about when shit went really, really bad. Um, and then you fast forward again to 2011. And there's a very interesting moment in outside's history that only in hindsight do I really see is a big deal. And that is when we published our first kind of big feature story that stepped back and tried to talk about why is it healthy for us to go outside? That's kind of curious that there's like 40-year-old publication that our whole purpose was to inspire people to get outside. And all of a sudden, we felt like we had to step back and say, wait, we should talk about why this is good for you. And um, that the cover line for that issue, December 2011, was, this is your brain on nature. And the picture was a very handsome biologist, a guy named Wallace J. Nichols, floating in a pool of water. And um, it wasn't supposed to be our cover. It was actually an accident. We had planned this photo shoot with a professional athlete and spent a lot of money at it. As things happen in media, that just didn't work out so well. And so we start going through the film. What else do we have here? This guy's kind of cool looking, and he's floating in water. What's that story about? Well, I had written that story. And what it was about was this guy, Jay Nichols, as he was known, was on this quest. He was a turtle biologist But what he was on a quest to do was to spur a whole bunch of research into understanding why it is that we feel so good when we're next to water, and particularly like the beach. Why does it feel so just great and special and relaxing to close your eyes and lie in the warm sand and hear the the water roll by? And uh, as he explained it to me, you know, he wanted to spur all these MRI studies of our brains to see all what kind of groovy things were happening inside of us when when we were in those environments. He would go to the grant writing institutions and he would go to the universities and research centers and he would explain his big idea or pitch them, you know, in written form. And what he would get was some version of, you must be from California, um, which, which he was. Um, so that, that created some difficulty for him. Um, but as it happened, we, you know, we, so we put out this December issue, your brain on nature, this is your brain on nature. Sort of like, well, this is where we got it to work. Total home run. Huge hit on the newsstands. We were like, huh, look at that. When we did what every mercenary media organization does, as we said, let's order a sequel. Um, and so we did, and this is one of those rare cases where the sequel was so much better than the original. And that's because we called Florence, best science journalist we know. And we said, Florence, would you go deep on this topic? Would you really look into what's going on out there? Because we think this whole brain on nature thing is kind of a, it's something. 
And she came back with this fantastic, fantastic story. And I'll, I'll tell you, I have to do this. I'm sorry. Um, I remember reading the first draft and I wasn't her editor, but I was one of a small crew that read it. And the reality of magazine writing and long form journalism is usually the first draft comes in. You're like, okay, well, this is a starting point. And that's usually as a writer, when you get that first line, like this is a great start, you know, you're screwed. You've got a lot of work to do, but this was one of the rare drafts that came in where you read it and you're like, that's pretty much it. Um, I mean, we had some edits, but the work was really fantastic. And I don't want to get into the details of what she uncovered, because uh, she's going to get into some of that. But that was the seed, I believe, of the nature fix, or at least one of the important ones. And so we haven't stopped telling those kinds of stories since. Uh, we looked at digital detox. We've done stories on like why being outside makes you more productive during your work day. Um, and then came last year, where we really wanted to focus on childhood. And we had this overall sense that people like me and people like, I guess, many of you have this growing angst and anxiety about the experience our children are having and a sense that they are lacking wild experiences and what this might mean. And so we called Florence, naturally, and we called several other of the contributors we most respect on these topics. And we said, how do we address this? What are the stories we should tell? What are we going to, you know, what's at the center of all this? And a lot of really incredible pieces came in. Uh, Richard Louvre, who wrote a book I imagine many of you are familiar with, Last Child in the Woods, and who coined the term the nature deficit disorder, he wrote a heartbreaking piece for us about loneliness and about why every generation for some time now is shown to be lonelier and feel more isolated than the generation before. And his answer for that, or his one of the things he brought up about that is this is actually an issue of species loneliness, because we are not out there connecting with wildlife anymore in particular, that that is making us feel very alone on this planet, and how crucially important it is to give our children experience in wild environments to see other living things that they're connected to. We got an essay from Katie Arnold, who has a book out now. Many of you may have heard of it. It's called Running Home. It's a memoir about how she used trail running to overcome really serious issues of anxiety and fear and depression. Now, Katie's a woman who has been contributing outside for a long time. I've, I've known her forever. And in her 40s, she became an elite trail runner, and not until her 40s. And now she's literally winning huge endurance events, 50 miles, 75 miles, 100 miles. I don't know why anyone does that, but she really, really enjoys it, and she does fantastically well. And I called her and was like, Katie, what do you want to do? You've written a bunch about parenting for us. And she told me a story. And she said, you know, Mike, last summer, I had a mom come to me, a friend of mine, who has an 11-year-old daughter, and she said, hey, Katie, you're a mom like me. You write about this stuff. You're a runner. And there's this 5K run coming up in town. Would you train my daughter? I want her to do really well. And Katie, you know, sort of had to step back and think about this. She said, um, tell you what, I'm not going to train your daughter. I'm not going to coach your daughter. I'll take her running, though. Can, can we just go for a run maybe this Saturday? So that's what they do. Except Katie shows up at the trailhead that Saturday, and this young 11-year-old was pretty excited about it, so she told her friends, and they told their friends, and there were 25 kids waiting at the trailhead. So Katie shows up and is like, oh, okay, and it had rained a ton the night before, and they go charging down this trail, right, splashing through the mud. Mile and a half in is the planned turnaround point. Now, these kids were aged 8 to 14, and at the turnaround point, something interesting happened. 
The eight-year-old sat down, and he took his shoes off, and he took his socks off, and he smiled, and he turned, he started running back down the trail. Well, naturally, 24 other kids sat down, and they took their socks off, or shoes off and their socks off. And what transpired from there was kind of like a slip and slide, but really, really messy. And Katie's watching this unfold before her, and she took her shoes off and socks off. And she goes running down the trail chasing these kids. And as she wrote for us, it, it wasn't training or coaching far from it. It was barely running anymore. It was just playing. And that is something else we seem to have lost the ability to do, to just let our kids play when one, running, or excuse me, winning doesn't matter. Florence contributed a beautiful essay to the uh, package about rebuilding the outdoor rites of passage on the journey to adulthood that have been lost over time. So we start getting all these stories in and we're really excited. We're like, wow, this is an amazing collection. This is really saying something. But we were also struggling because we were trying to figure out what is, what is this problem we're addressing again? What's at the heart of this? Because the easy thing to reach for is screens, right? We, is the, is the boogeyman. It's very easy to look up and say, oh yeah, it's the amount of time they look at their phones and the video games. And, and I believe that's part of it. But does that explain species loneliness? Does that explain hyper competitive parents? Maybe. I mean, kind of, but, but not really. And so we kept discussing this, and the answer came from you again, um, where we were having some email exchanges, and you brought up something from the Nature Fix. And that's this fact that we are in perhaps the largest migration in modern human history, and that is the migration indoors. That is what we're in the middle of experiencing right now. And it has profound impacts on how we live our lives and how childhood is experienced. And if you think about it, I'm going to borrow a couple more stats from you here. Today's kids in the United States and Britain, compared to their parents, spend 50% less time outside. Half as much time. Now, what's that doing to us? Well... Research sort of suggests there's issues with obesity and vitamin D deficiency, anxiety issues, social and behavioral issues. We're becoming an indoor, sedentary species who communicates to each other through screens. And when you dig a little deeper, to take one more stat from you, that really freaks me out is if you go over to East Asia, where the migration indoors is even more pronounced than what it is here, what you see is that teenagers, that the rate of nearsightedness surpasses 90%. 90% of teenagers being nearsighted. Now, we know what that's from, and that's kind of horrifying. And yet, at the same time, there is some good and interesting news out there. And a lot of it is in the nature fix, which is that there's this emerging body of research that shows us that the solution to so much of this is just out the door. That being in nature is, makes us healthy and it makes us happy, even if we're like not aware of it because we're like slapping mosquitoes or like shivering in the morning cold. It is good for us. And then I think we get to the step that's even more exciting for me, and that's the, the topic of our current cover issue, one of the ones that was out there, which is that there's this movement among doctors to literally prescribe nature to their patients. And I'm not talking casual, Mike, you should probably spend more time outside. I mean like a prescription. 
like for asthma or pain medication or getting antibiotics, that this is taking off and it's moving quickly. In 2006, there was a single pilot project in the state of New Mexico for nature prescriptions. Today, there are more than 70 programs across 36 states. By the end of the year, that's probably going to hit close to 100. There are hundreds and hundreds of doctors issuing thousands of prescriptions for their patients to spend time outside. And then one more step is you look within that movement and you see people like Dr. Nusheen Razani, who are realizing that this therapy, that this medicine, if you will, needs to be brought to the communities that need it most. It has to. And, you know, we have that cute cover line on that issue. Scientists, or science's newest miracle drug is free, right? And Marini can feel free. I mean, we could walk down the block here and the trailhead's not far. But for a lot of the Bay Area, nature isn't free, if you don't own a car and you live in an inner city area, is nature free? If you have a few kids and you've got to hold down a couple jobs, is nature free? No, it can feel impossible. And so we need doctors who are activists and I think really true healers for our whole community to, to do that for us. And I think the last point I want to make, and this is sort of ironic, and it, to me it gets at the heart of the modern human condition, which is that the tool that so many of these doctors are using to prescribe nature, the one that is most efficient and effective, you know what it is, right? It's a phone. It's a, you go into the doctor's office, they have their iPad, they say you need a nature prescription, and they say, okay, you don't know because of who you are perhaps where the closest park is or how much time to spend out time. So if I use the nature park, um, Park Nature, I could get it wrong, America Park Nature Rx app. There's an app out there, and there's actually a growing number of them. They can literally deliver that prescription right there in the office to their patient. The information pops up on the phone. Here's the closest park. Here's a few options. Here's how often I want you to go there. And when you go, track it, tap, and I'll know you've fulfilled your prescription. So really, again, I don't, screens are an issue, but I don't want to blame them. The same technology that is the problem may have a big role to play in the solution. I find that kind of fascinating. So I'm going to sit down in a moment. I'm going to let Florence take over here. And then after her, Dr. Rizani is going to speak. And thank you very much. Is this on? Yeah. Cool. Thank you, Mike. That was a really nice introduction to me and to the themes we're going to be talking about. Um, and thanks to the Commonwealth Club, and thanks to you all for coming. And it's really an honor for me to be here with Nusheen Razani, who's a total hero of mine. Uh, and I'm just honored to be here with her. Um, so how many of you all, when you were kids, played outside every day? Wow. Okay, so maybe this is a self-selecting crowd. <laughs> Maybe this is Mill Valley. <laughs> but as, as I'm sure, you know, we all know, kids today aren't really having that same opportunity um, for sort of free play outside. And there's a quote from the writer Michael Chabon that I really love um, from an essay of his called Manhood for Amateurs. And he writes, Childhood is or has been or ought to be 
The Great Original Adventure, a tale of privation, courage, constant vigilance, danger, and sometimes calamity. And yet children today are simply not having those calamitous or otherwise adventures. So in 2012, um, my family moved from the beautiful Rocky Mountains, where I had lived for 23 years, to the heart of Washington, D.C. And I have two kids. When we moved there, um, I, I looked around. It was July. I looked around the streets of D.C., and it was like a moonscape. There were no children outside. Now it was hot out. <laughs> That's true. But, you know, in general, kids in D.C. are indoors, and they're overscheduled, and they're overprogrammed, and their parents are fearful, and, you know, it's all the things we sort of hear about. Um, I also felt grief for myself because I felt like a cortisol bomb, sort of a stress bomb was going off in my own brain for this move. And it was around this time that Outside Magazine called with this story idea that that really would change my life. <laughs> and so thank you for that, Outside Magazine. Um, and I ended up, they said, they said, find where you can go around the world where there's some research going on. And it, it took a while. And eventually I came back and I said, well, would you send me to Japan? Because there's some kind of cool stuff going there. And they sort of said, well, that's kind of expensive. <laughs> but they said, okay. And so, um, I, I found uh, uh, some anthropologists and some physiologists who were doing some research and they were, they were actually trying to figure out what was going on in our bodies and our brains when we go out into nature. And they were doing these experiments on what they called forest therapy trails. Now there are several dozen of them in Japan. Sort of an interesting term that we probably wouldn't use here, at least not, not, not yet, maybe someday. Uh, and they were finding that after just 15 minutes of people sort of doing what they call forest bathing, which is a, a phrase that since 2012 I think has kind of taken off a bit, um, cortisol levels, these stress hormones, were dropping 16%. Blood pressure was dropping 4%. Heart rate slowing down. Uh, and, and, and this was not happening. They were sending similar groups of people to walk around urban areas. You know, because at first I thought, well, maybe this is just an exercise effect, right? We know people feel good when they're exercising. But they really tried to adjust for that by having groups of people walk around a city, same amount of time, walking around the forest. Uh, and they really only saw these benefits in the forest. And, and forest bathing, by the way, it's it's not a lot of exertion necessarily. It's um, really opening up all of your senses. And the Japanese have really sort of taught me that that's sort of the secret in some ways to kind of, this, that's the that's the shortcut to restoration and feeling relaxed. That if you really open all of your senses, you become mindful, right, in that space. You hear, you feel, you sense what's around you. Your thinking brain starts to shut down a little bit for a moment. And that, it turns out, is really good for us. And then I also went to some forests for another story. This was for National Geographic later on, because I got so into this topic. <laughs> I went to South Korea, and I saw groups of firefighters with post-traumatic stress, first responders, spending three days in the forest. Um, and I was very moved by that and by their experiences there and how, how, how incredibly beneficial it was for them. But I... I really became most moved probably when I went to Scandinavia and I started visiting the forest kindergartens. 
And it's not like I think there's anything wrong with American preschools, or at least I didn't up until that time. My kids went through conventional classrooms. But when I saw these kids running around the woods, I thought, wow, this is what kids are supposed to be doing. These kids were having the time of their lives, and they had these times every day. They were wearing big galoshes, and they were tromping around puddles, and they were jumping across creeks, and they were climbing trees. They were building fires, and they were throwing stones, and they were having burials for dead frogs. Uh, at one point, a kid with a junior hacksaw ran by me, and I think I must have gasped or something. And the head of the school in Scotland said, oh, you Americans, you're so uptight. <laughs> she said, we don't do risk avoidance. What we do is hazard assessment. And we think that these kids are ready for some of these skills. And in fact, if you challenge these kids and you give them sort of grown-up tools and you give them things to do, that is actually how they learn, right? Through finding the edges and through challenging themselves. And at one point, I saw this little girl climbing very high up in a tree. She was probably five years old. And there was another little girl on the ground just looking at her with great admiration. And I started to realize, and I started also to read papers, and I started to think about nature as a sort of gender-neutralizing space in a way, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in a way that I hadn't before. And there's actually a study showing that kids who play in conventional urban playgrounds um, the boys are running around a lot more than the girls. And researchers know this because they're studying how little exercise, really, kids are getting today. But an interesting thing happens when you start to go to these nature play spaces, and that is that the little girls actually start running around just as much. Now, we know that adolescents are in a crisis today. Girls especially are facing higher rates of suicide and higher rates of depression than we've ever seen before in this age group. Um, for, for teenagers in general, depression is up 77% over 10 years ago. Um, we know that there's kind of a dip in well-being across the lifespan, several dips. One of them happens around middle age, but another is happening in that 12 to 16-year-old age group. Um, and it's that that dip is deepening right now. We are in a crisis. And I started to really think about, you know, what, what do we do about this? I had seen some great things about nature and nature access. For my book, I visited a nature boarding school. And I actually um, also wrote, wrote about this for Outside, where um, teenage boys who have ADHD, who are really not able to function very well in a conventional classroom are thriving in these programs outdoors where they are learning about geology while they're hanging on a rock wall. They're learning about civil war battles while they're literally backpacking through a battlefield. Um, they're learning about marine biology in a canoe. And the head of the school said to me, you know, when a kid is hanging off a cliff wall in a harness, he's sitting in this sweet spot of arousal and stress in which these windows of learning open up for the brain. And that made so much sense to me, that the teenage brain is designed to learn. Those neurons are designed to grow because of exploration and because of a certain amount of challenge that kids are just really not getting today. And I started to think more and more about these rites of passage 
Um, and so when Michael and I were talking about sort of how to, you know, what kinds of stories to write for this issue, I was like, well, how about those rites of passage? Because I was very moved by what I saw in those adolescent boys. Uh, and of course, you know, I, I've seen it in girls too. I also wrote about the Girl Scouts for Outside. And I saw that middle school girls were so eager to go camping. They were so eager to learn archery. Um, they wanted to rock climb. They wanted to mountain bike. And yet their troop leaders were not comfortable going camping because they had never been camping. So we were now facing two generations who are not comfortable going outside. And it's the kids who want to put the chain back together. The link is broken. They want to put it back together. And yet there are so many obstacles in their way. We need to help them do this. So I think I'll just end there and, you know, looking forward to taking questions um, from you all and from, from Michael, too, later. So thanks. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So the question of whether nature should be a prescription or a clinical intervention is actually a really interesting one. And I think I'm going to try to define that a little bit um, better and really maybe change what you guys think that that means. Um, I'm going to go through a little bit of my own life experiences and then a little bit about what I've learned through my research to try to help define a park prescription really as a partnership between allies inside and outside clinics to really hold and be a community for children in the way that we should be. So less of a piece of paper that I write and more of a relationship that I develop with an outdoor agency or with a park to ensure that we hold children in the way that maybe, you know, idealized villages of the past used to. Um, so I was actually trained as a pediatric infectious diseases specialist. And once I had children of my own, I did really feel what we've heard of, what we've heard from the other speakers that, you know, to really support healthy human development, the environments that children live in should allow for exploration, for play, for risk-taking, also for eye contact with adults or eye contact with other human beings, much less other species, um, and that I was actually living in San Francisco, and I love San Francisco, but it was not providing that for either me or my children. And I was in a position where I was... A pediatrician, I had had like four brothers. I would say that I was pretty arrogant about the whole motherhood thing, but I really was kicked on my butt and I, you know, I became pretty depressed and extremely lonely pretty quickly. And it was in outdoor spaces, actually, it was in the botanical gardens in the redwood grove, which is like a few redwoods, um, where I would just you know, dump my stuff and my kids that I really, like, felt the, the healing power um, of the outdoors. 
And I guess I, I saw the nature light, and I decided to devote my life to nature and children. I do have to put in the caveat that I've always been a nature person, as many of you may be, and that I speak the language of nature. And so I am in this work because I care deeply about the environment. And I think a lot of physicians in this work have that as a secondary aim. So I actually did a fellowship in nature and mental health at UCSF. And through that program, I was connected to a a big effort that is still ongoing in the Bay Area called Healthy Parks, Healthy People. And actually, Marin County Health System is a very active member of that that movement to bring parks and health together. Um, And I helped during that time. This was like in 2009, 2010. I helped create a park prescription program in the Bayview um, in San Francisco. I was also still working at Children's Hospital Oakland, and we were approached by East Bay Regional Parks with that idea of writing prescriptions um, for nature. And I have to say that I was part of a group of physicians that gave a huge pushback. And I still push back when people say that because really you know, access to nature is a public health issue, Um, especially in the East Bay where less than 10% of all the total tree cover is in the flatlands, which is also the area where you have the lowest life expectancy and the most chronic illness. And so to think that a piece of paper for me or a recommendation to go outside would somehow tip all those imbalances um, was not only naive, but just a little tiring as a you know a primary care provider. In that context, and maybe in this one too, access to nature is really a, an issue of health equity. And, and so the, the clinicians pushed back, and we said, we're not going to write nature prescriptions. You need to make more parks where our patients live. Um, but we were very lucky because East Bay Regional Parks were amazing partners, and they said... Yes, and, and they kept wanting to know more and to address whatever barrier we raised. So first we said, you need to bring nature to our patients. And so they actually decorated our entire clinic with local parks in the patient rooms. They put up these like 16-foot posters of redwood forests. And um, that was amazing because it allowed nature to, to speak for itself, essentially. Um, Then we also said, well, people need a ride, and if we go out into nature, you have to feed people, and um, we need a a naturalist with us because this is a new territory for many families. And they said yes to all of those things. Um, And so it's now five years later. We've had more than 73 nature outings. They happen on the first um, of the month. This last Saturday, we went fishing, and we caught a striker and a baby shark, We also saw a snake, and we have more than 50 people come on each outing now, Um, and we are actually billing for our nature visits, which is amazing. But early on, when we actually decided to do the nature prescriptions for real, I also took a look at the nature and health literature, and at that time, there was a big movement to make this about obesity and obesity prevention. But what I've really seen about the nature and health literature is that you're not always physically active when you're outside. Actually, sometimes you just 
sit and picnic or you just sit and think about poetry or whatever you do when you're outside. Um, but there is pretty consistent evidence that being in nature relieves stress. And in medicine in general, we are really understanding that social consequences which lead to toxic levels of stress have real biological impacts. So to the tune of your zip code in Oakland um, can determine your lifespan. There's a 14-year difference in lifespan depending on where you're from. Um, Early childhood adversity, which can happen in any socioeconomic context, which is like really difficult things such as child abuse or the death of a, a parent, these events actually have a dose-dependent impact on life expectancy over the long haul. And so, you know, we were very moved by the potential for nature to, to provide a little bit of stress relief. Um, and I think everything that we've heard about the great migration indoors for pediatricians, what that translates to is less opportunity for children to do what they, you know, to heal in the ways that children do naturally, which, you know, they are born with that capacity to play and to make sense of the world and to heal the things that they go through, but they are being prevented from those opportunities um, now. And so... We decided to make our prescriptions about stress and stress relief and resilience. Um, a little bit about the research that we've done. We've, uh, we did a randomized trial on our park prescriptions where we followed 78 parents and 78 children who received the park prescriptions. And we did see stress relief, um, improvement in loneliness in the parents and I, I do want to, I didn't say this, but we insisted that if we gave a park prescription to a child, they absolutely must be allowed to bring their parents or whoever else in their extended family would come. And that um, really is because of the research coming out of SF State, Dr. Nina Roberts, who talks about family and the opportunity to eat as a picnic or a barbecue um, being something that really resonates with most cultures. Um, and I think at Children's Hospital Oakland, we've really realized that when we say the, the word nature, we actually mean family and community. And so to try to give a child nature without family and community just really didn't make sense. Um, so, of course, we didn't just measure outcomes in the children. We also measured it in the parents. But in children, we did measure resilience, and we saw that with every increase in weekly park visits um, that a family had, their child would have a small but incremental improvement in resilience. And the way we measured resilience was just by asking children a series of questions that has to do with how well they bounce back from stressors. Um, which, you know, in the long run can lead to things like anxiety and depression. So that's kind of our, our hallmark study. Um, I am now working on a study really looking at where is the joy in screens and the joy in middle school and, and preteens around screens. 
Um, let me take water. One of the reasons that we're working on some of this qualitative work is because I absolutely refuse to look children in the eye and to tell them that their world is horrible. I can't. I won't do it. And I also am very aware of the nostalgia that fuels this mo- this movement, and the fact that um, you know I spent a lot of time watching TV myself, and so I may have a little bit less of it. But that children are constantly being compared to a very idealized uh, view of what life used to be, and I'd rather find out what life can be and the potential and beauty in their current world. And so I see a lot of happiness happening for kids online, and I just want to understand it. I'm not saying that it's correct, that it's disconnected from the physical beings, but if I'm really going to create a health intervention that's trying to change human behavior, then I really need to understand the human behavior that's being targeted. And so just to bring this full circle. In the beginning, I said, this is a public health issue. It's not a prescription issue. I think that through the process of having these nature prescriptions, which ended up being wildly successful at our hospital, we have more than um, 200 to 300 prescriptions written a year. Out of all the social things that we prescribe, which include like housing and food, the nature outings are the most Popular. That does not mean that that's what people need the most, but they ha- it happens to be a very popular program. Um, so I'm a little bit converted to the idea of a nature prescription. And part of the reason why I'm converted is because I do see this as a behavior change issue, kind of the same way that alcohol use or tobacco use or physical activity is. Um, I can't really practice medicine while people are completely sedentary. And so if I don't address this issue, it's like the elephant in the room. I won't make the asthma better. I won't make the obesity better. I won't make the anxiety better if I don't get this human being to change their behavior. And so I do think that there's a role for a nature prescription, but it's more a lifestyle modification intervention where physicians absolutely need allies outside of clinics. And so this is where I'm going to push it back on everyone here, is that we hear a lot about the crisis happening for children when it has to do with nature. I actually think that children are yearning for us. We are detached. We are distracted. We are the problem in many cases. I mean, I'm in many of my patients, I come into the room and the parent is on the phone and does not make eye contact with me or their child. And so I, I see a generation of children yearning for adults. That, that's my observation. And I see that if the adult will go outside with them, they'll follow. So um, another thing that I want to push back on you is that the research is very clear that nature contact is associated with longevity. There's a huge study in the UK that's like their entire census that shows that um, living in the most green area improves health and equity and it improves cardiovascular disease and lifespan. 
And so I see that as a call to action. It should not be that nature is inequitably distributed. It should not be that Marin looks one way and Oakland looks a different way. That is a society issue that will take a lot of advocacy. And physicians are one piece of the whole movement that has enough evidence already to ensure that everyone has access to nature. I think that's all I have to say. Okay, thank you. Thanks to both of you, Nushin. That was really, um, <clears throat> I'm a little floored here and feeling like my questions are kind of weak. Um, but I do have a few uh, that I think I'll get through before I <clears throat> turn it over to all of you. And the first, uh, I'd imagine this for you, Florence, but you might have a take on this too. And I don't know if anyone in the room saw this, but there was a study, and I think um, it came out around February, where the, the headline version of the, of the study that came out in a number of outlets was that screens are no worse for kids than eating potatoes. Um, and that was literally the headline <clears throat> in a number of stories. And there's, you know, you can unpack that and we, we might get into some of the details of, of that study, which, you know, as much as that sounds crazy, there's some real validity to what they were looking at. But I think for me, what that gets at, and what I think you were really addressing quite eloquently, was that the panic right now seems to center around screens, that that's the easy, easy target. Um, and I think it's valid to be brought up because if you, you know, I, I was giving that trajectory of Outside Magazine, gee, what happened that spurred us? Well, 2007 was the introduction of the iPhone. So it took us a few years for our readers to be like, help. Um, but I also know that's not the only thing. So I just, that idea, I don't know if you want to say anything specific, Florence, about that study, if you know much about it, or just this existential panic we have over screens being maybe something we need to get ourselves away from if we're going to make progress. Mm, okay, that's a multi-layered question. I am familiar with the study a little bit and the headline. It was a really clever headline. You know, we all like potatoes. <laughs> um, you know, and it seems so counterintuitive and it was catchy, but, but really the point of the study was to show how easy it is to sort of misinterpret data um, and how how any kind of bias, when you look at vast amounts of data, you can sort of interpret it any way you want. And in fact, that study looked at a ton of different variables of well-being, and it looked at screen time, um, did not parse out social media time, um, which I think is really significant. Um, you know, because we all grew up, everyone generation X, I mean, we all grew up with a lot of screen time. It was called television. Uh, but what's really different now is that kids are communicating through screens and they're interacting through screens. And I actually think Dr. Rosani hit it absolutely on the head when the, the crisis in mental health right now is about connection. And you can say it's about connection to nature, and that's certainly part of it. But it, it's also fundamentally about our connection to each other. Um, but I, I don't want to let screens totally off the hook because of that piece. So... There's a really interesting study that I talk about um, looking at kids going to summer camp for five days, and it looked at a group of kids going to a sort of conventional indoor summer camp where there was some technology use, and then also looked at kids who went to a nature camp where there were no screens of any kind, and um, tested the kids on day one and just at day five. Um, it gave them a test of um, reading emotions in people's faces. So this is sort of a standard psychology test where you show people just eyes, 
and you say, what did those eyes express? And there was a big improvement in reading those scores in the kids who went to the nature camp and had to actually talk to each other for five days. And there was not an improvement in the kids who went to the indoor camp um, where they were sort of working on their own projects. And so I think there probably is something about the way they're communicating that is is fundamentally removing them from this this really critical skill that we need. And it is a skill to be able to look each other in the face and really understand each other and feel empathy and feel compassion. And I completely agree, and I hope I didn't sound too pro-screens. I think I was trying to be pragmatic that I need to understand the issue. But um, you are absolutely right that um, social skills are learned, and actually so is empathy. And uh, you develop empathy mostly through an attachment to an adult figure. And so every time a a zero- to three-year-old child looks at an adult's face and their emotions are mirrored in the face of the adult, they learn empathy. And so I am extremely concerned about the fact that children are looking into faces that aren't looking back at them. And that's a real issue. Um, And I think that, you know, even the American Academy of Pediatrics has talked about the issue of distracted parenting. And, I, you know, I think that the ways in which adults are maybe failing children is by not being strong enough, by saying that, you know, I hear a lot of parents talking about, well, I don't really know, or my child likes this, um, but I think that we know enough to set up some real boundaries, like no phones at the dinner table, I'm not going to use my phone at the dinner table. Um, there are no phones at night when you sleep. I, mean, I think there's some real common sense parenting that our generation is going to have to learn how to be strong enough um, to do. And it's actually the same as potatoes. I don't know why that was seen as like not a big deal. But, but we can have potatoes at dinner. That's yeah. true. Yeah, I think it depends on how they're cooked. Yeah, no French fries. <laughs> but but I did, there is, um, I'm not sure if this is the same study, but um, there was a national study on screen use and teens and depression and anxiety. Actually, it was all children. And it seems like the the children who use no screens at all, less than an hour, and then those who use more than four and especially more than seven hours a day, um, are the ones that tend to really get into trouble. And, and that is a thing. I hope you... I'll know. It's a pretty common thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have to give a plug for, for someone who came and spoke at our school right here in Marin, a woman named Diana Graber, who who has, has a program called CyberWise, which I think just to add to what you're saying, her she was the per- first person I heard articulate what I felt like was an answer to this problem, which was you need to train the kids how to use them. You know, you don't hand them the keys to the car and say, just like, be careful out there. And you could argue that you have a much more deadly and powerful tool in their hands in a phone. And she's developed this multi-part curriculum that guides kids how to be digital citizens. And it goes beyond just protecting themselves, which is critically important, but how to be forces of good out there. So if you're really struggling, you have a kid approaching 6th, 7th, 8th grade or beyond, I do suggest you look up CyberWise because it's like there's like a a curriculum there and she has a new book out on it. Um, Moving on to something else, as we try to bring 
wild experiences, outdoor nature experiences back into our lives. I want to go back to this rites of passage story you wrote for us, because to me, that was one that hit me in the gut when I read it. And, you know, the, uh, the broad idea, I'd love you to talk about more about how these experiences that used to just really define, you know, this passage from childhood to early adulthood or child and what they've been replaced by and how there are people both, you know, families in their own lives and also programs, some here based in Marin, that are trying to bring these things back. Yeah, um, sure. I'd love to talk about that. So, I mean, our, our rites of passage these days um, are really learning to drive when you're a teenager and getting your phone. <laughs> and those are sort of, you know, there, of course, you know, there, we still have some bar mitzvahs and there are quinceaneras, you know, there, there are still some religious r- rituals and, and I don't, I don't want to diminish those in any way. But if you, if you really look at human cultures across millennia and across cultures, the, the rites of passage that takes place around adolescence in the wilderness has been a very, very dominant human tradition. Um, and, and typically what's, there are three parts to it. One is this kind of separation. Um, and often you're with other peers, your age, but you're sort of separated from the rest of your community for a little bit. Um, and then there's a kind of period of hardship, um, of some challenge and, and those, you know, traditionally range from, you know, giving, literally giving a piece of your flesh, right. Um, um, to, you know, to sort of, um, you know, maybe fasting and having some kind of vision. And then at the end, there's this very, very significant piece of it, which is this reintegration back into your community in which you are celebrated and valued and, um, basically sort of given this mantle, right, to adulthood. You are now a critical part of this community. We value you. We trust you to solve our problems as a community. And, you know, just it, it makes me so sad when I think about teens not feeling that. They don't feel valued by elders. They don't feel a part of their community. They don't feel that they are responsible for each other or for the community. Again, that gets back to this really critical connection issue. So um, there are some really cool programs out there, um, th- and one of them is here in Marin that I wrote about. Actually, there are a couple here. One, one is actually at Marin Academy. I don't know if there's anyone here from Marin Academy, but for their juniors and seniors, they do a three-day vision quest, and there's a lot of preparation for this. I wrote about a 14-year-old kid who'd gone through a program called Vilda, and he's from Mill Valley, or from Marin, and um, that was a year-long program in which he and another group of 13-year-olds um, learned some skills outdoors. They learned kayaking. They learned um, wilderness backpacking and orienteering. And and then there were these rituals that involved the families at the end that were really, really powerful. And I, I interviewed this 14-year-old, you know, who'd been through this. And he said, you know, I, I went into this program a boy and I came out a man. <laughs> And, and in fact, he has taken on a lot more responsibility in his household, you know, and he, he's a better brother to his siblings and he power washes the house without being out, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so it, it's kind of neat to think about are there ways, you know, in which we can ritualize these incredible transitions. And by the way, I'm interested in them not just for teenagers, but for adults too. I think, um, you know, I'm in a period of transition and I love the idea of, 
you know, finding meaning in ritual and nature uh, and with peers too. So I, I think it's something that as we all look towards ways to reconnect both with nature and with each other, the rites of passage are sort of an interesting place to look because they are so spiritually um, sort of laden. I mean, it's something in which we put a lot of thought into what is the larger meaning of being an individual in a society. I think that's amazing. <laughs> the The only thing that I have to add is it, when they look at why children are attracted to outdoor spaces, um, it's really different than what adults are attracted to. Adults are often attracted to what's beautiful, or a, a beautiful landscape. And children are attracted to spaces that look like adults are not dominant, <laughs> basically. And so I, I think what I've... You know, the, the few kids that I've had the opportunity to, to kind of learn about why they're online, it seems like so far until that gets controlled, it is a space of freedom and where they're not being observed. And so when you were talking about the opportunity to go out and conquer something new, um, I think that right now the only spaces that are open to children are online. And so maybe we can allow for a little bit more freedom in the physical world. That is really interesting. Uh, and there, there's an incredible connection to a, a story I, I signed recently, and I just read the first draft, that it's, it's sort of very horrifying, but but also really provocative. Um, and it's about video games, and particularly the kinds of new, what they call open world games, which is exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, the last time I played Video games was like Donkey Kong era. Um, and if you look at what's happening in video games now, it's remarkable. And the reality is many of the best creators in all of culture, in all of media, are in video games. And if you don't know the statistics, it's incredible. Screen Actors Guild, right, which employs actors for films, more Screen Actors Guild um, actors are now involved in video games than film. The 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 uh, video game came out last um, year called in the fall called Red Dead Redemption Two, um, which earned more in its first weekend, like three times more than the Titanic or something, which is the all-time biggest opening film. So like films, TV, where everyone talks about the golden age, like Netflix, you got nothing on video games. And not only that, if you look at these games, Red Dead Redemption Two takes place at this transition time in the late 1800s between the Old West and the beginning of really an industrial area of this country, and all the artwork and all the scenes are pulled from the Hudson um, sort of painting tradition. And it's just like you. I went and watched the trailer, and I didn't really play, but I kind of got in, and it's it's beautiful. Like, it's astounding looking, and it feels real, and it's open. You can go in any direction, and every person you look at speaks. Um, so the, well, the connection here is that I think, you know, you talked about joy in screens from some kids, and, and at least the research that this writer turned in on this still-to-be-edited story um, is that what's happening in, in the players' game, their brains while they're playing those games, is nearly identical to what's happening in a real-world outdoor environment. And so, he actually, his, a lot of his reporting takes place at a video game addiction center, um, because what doesn't happen, 
even though your brain thinks you're out in the wild and sees these beautiful things, is you're not breathing in the pine forest. You're not feeling the sun and getting vitamin D. You're not actually physically moving. You're sitting in the basement eating chips for 12 hours. You're playing at 4.30 a.m. You're getting the human connection, though, because these people, the kids who play these games, are connecting with other kids all around the world. They're not playing alone. They're wearing headsets talking to their new best friend who they've never met. And these get the, the relationships that happen online in these gaming stores are really deep. The, these people who play these games take it very seriously. It's not a joke. But I, I wonder if that is sort of, you know, there's some of the research you're talking about, because it, it connects to something I think that came out in your first story, which is that even if you put like some plants in people's offices or like the nice picture of Yosemite on the wall, you get a lift that some of the research shows like just the not even real nature. But the, the, the facsimile of nature does some of this for you. So I don't know if there's a question. Well, I have a question. I mean, that, what, you're, what you're getting at really is kind of a dose curve, yeah. that there is a benefit with a picture on the wall and a window view. Um, but it brings up a question I have for you, because in your last study, you said that really the more time these families are going into parks, the more resilience you're seeing. And I'm wondering if there's a little bit of a magic number that's emerged for how much time these kids, how, like how how much do they need for it to really make a meaningful difference? I, I, I've started talking about the daily dose, like you just need a daily dose, because much of the research shows that the nature effect is there, but it's mild. It, it, it's not like taking a chemotherapeutic or aspirin. It's mild. And so you, you kind of need to live in nature and be in nature. And I think... Um, it's it's an old story that we've told ourselves about like going to Yosemite, my life changed story. I don't know if that exists in Outside Magazine, but in a lot it of does. outside, yeah. And that did happen to me when I was in fifth grade. But but it's more like the daily nature in your neighborhood um, that I think is really important. Um, you know, we I don't have a number, but. Um, we happen to raise people's weekly park visits from one park visit a week as a family to three park visits a week as a family. And that had an effect. That wow. doesn't, okay. that doesn't mean, yeah. And you get a medal. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. I'm just going to ask my last question before I think I, I throw it out to the rest of you. But if, if we sort of play this forward, Nusheen, and we, and we, we sort of try to figure out where this goes, what it starts to feel like, is, you know, I mentioned when I was speaking earlier about these grand national federal laws. You know, you talk Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act. All these things happened like 40 years ago. We haven't made a lot of progress since. feels like we're drifting terribly backwards. But it, it seems like the next step on this may be something like a Nature Access Act that really guarantees some right of, you know, if you're in a community, there needs to be within a certain distance from your home and everyone's home, an ability to go, you know, not quite forest bathe perhaps, but have some engagement with a, a, a natural and healthy space. Is that, is that like the dream of where we go of what we, and where we end up in? I mean, my dream is that like the word forest and the word city is, is not necessarily a separate concept. I mean, I think that we need bio, I mean, really, I'm in this for biodiversity and for the future of the planet. 
And so there is no reason why we can't have connected greenways between Sacramento and San Francisco. And I'm taking a lot of this from John Jarvis, who I met with recently, who's talking about, um, you know, how do we really rewild society and how do we really create biodiverse environments that are carbon sinks. And so I think, um, to me, the dream is that you, you do have your internet and your life and your trees outside if you want to go all the way out there. But, but um, I do, I do want to say that if anyone here is more powerful than me, um, I think that one area of creativity and exploration for youth right now is climate change. They're really excited about it, and we don't own it. Like, they, they want to work on it. And what I hear from a lot of youth is that our generation is so fixated on proving it that we're not giving them opportunities to do things with it. And so if anyone here has, you know, or can help create scholarships for young people to run with their ideas on solutions, I mean, I think that is a space like video games that this generation could own, so... Did I change the subject? No, you did great. Okay. <laughs> um, you owned the subject, okay. I think. So if anyone, um, we have a mic, I guess, can be passed around, and we'd love to take some questions, or they would, they're the experts. Okay, so I have a, I have a specific question, but it's going to take me a minute to lead into it. So we have two young children, and um, we, we, you know, we try to be enlightened about this stuff, which is why we're here tonight. And so they don't do screen time, but... They read a lot of books, but that's still sitting at home. That's okay. (laughs) Okay. So we figure that's like, that's a good step in the right direction. They read a lot of books and we know we want their cardio to, so we have them signed up for things like soccer and organized activities. So, okay, we're doing pretty good there next on the hierarchy, but the part I think we're not like, we live in Marin, so we're doing a pretty good job, but we're not great at the like, oh, let's just like for the morning, go to Muir beach or let's like, just, you know, get out and go. And so the practical, like the, the one thing that I didn't hear was I just, if, if I could get a couple just very practical tips, like, you know what, if you can't get to Muir Woods, just give them a shovel and tell them to go dig in the yard. Or like, are there things that just like have them touch grass or that I should be like encouraging my kids? I feel to like do? you're answering your own question. <laughs> so I, and I'm going to go ahead and, and I hope I don't sound too bold to say this, but it's okay to just skip the cardio and, and don't involve the sports. I mean, I'm going to confess right now. I come from a, my kids are in Waldorf school and they aggressively say, don't play competitive sports until fifth or sixth grade. And I was joking with a friend beforehand because we went to town school for boys in San Francisco, which is like, if Waldorf is here, town schools over on the other side of town. And we didn't play competitive sports till sixth grade. And that's changed. And, you know, that story I told about Katie Arnold, like, they're in third, fourth, fifth, if, when they're that young at least, you don't need to give them the cardio. Just they'll go outside and they can get it. Like, they're going to find their way. You're going to get the cardio if you follow them. But I also think, I know what you mean about you want to, you, you can't get to Mirror Woods and you're in Marin and it's pretty. My sense is if you just roll out the door, something will happen. But I, I'd love to hear from, from these two as well. First of all, I think your urge to have guidelines is a really good one, and one day there will be guidelines, I hope. Um, but until that day, I'd, I'd kind of like to like take it down to an attachment-level approach to parenting. And I just encourage you to... How old did you say your kids were? Two and four? Yeah. 
Nine and a half and eight. Okay, it's a little bit harder, but to really just get on their level and see what they need. Like, and, you know, they're like, I, th- I think of this line of research kind of like the you need to eat dinner with your family research, which is very clear in pediatrics that if you eat dinner with your family, you have better outcomes. And I actually have seen studies that quantify the number of times a week you need to eat dinner. But really, it's the intention of doing your best to do it as many times as a week that really matters. And, you know, I really think of nature as a relationship. It's a relationship that you want to you want to teach your children that they have something that can contribute to their resilience. Like when they're down and sad and going through hardship, later you want them to know that they could go to your you know beach and feel better. And so you just need to be tuned into them to see like you know when how many maybe you only need to go once. But I I would really one of the reasons I resisted the prescription models I don't want this to be like an extra thing that people have to do, right? And the most important thing for childhood outcome is maternal mental health. So if anything is stressing you out, it's not good. Like it's not good. And so I would just, it sounds like you guys are doing everything amazingly well and you have nature in your neighborhood. You're okay. Yeah. Good. I would also just add as a mom that one of the things that really got my kids excited about being outside was having other kids to go with, right? I mean, that's how we all grew up, right? In packs of kids. And now kids are sort of sequestered into their own, you know, private, whatever. Um, so, you know, if you can get other families out and other kids to participate and provide snacks, you know, they will invent fun. You don't have to really make it for them. And if it helps, I've personally found that there's like a 20 minute resistance phase. (laughs) Like, so if you do try to do a nature activity, I would give yourself time because there's going to be, they need to have that discomfort And then they go into play, and then, like, really good play peaks after another 20 minutes. So I would, you know, make sure you have that time. (laughs) Yeah. In the back. Um, It's always puzzled me why the schools don't, in their PE time, don't have things like learning how to use the compass, orienteering, finding a trail, finding a step lane or stairs, that kind of thing. And a lot of this could be embedded in the curriculum. Instead of doing kickball or competitive team sport, you could have a group of kids in the same hour going for a hike. And there's almost no urban area in the United States that doesn't have pocket parks and doesn't have places where you can walk along a creek or a river. And it it seems like that's something we could build into curriculums without costing anything. I agree. I'm really passionate about recess and, you know, appallingly recess is getting taken away all the time. I mean, forget orienteering. It's just, there is no recess. There is no kickball. Um, I spoke to a group of sixth graders and I said, how many minutes do you get a day? And they said zero. <laughs> um, in Washington DC where I live, one in 10 kids is getting the recommended amount of recess in the public school system. And same is true in the private school system. I mean, it's really appalling. And I think that's where parents need to really lobby. Yeah, I think this is like when I started this work and I was trying to get people into nature and I suddenly learned, whoa, they're not even like out of doors, much less in nature. Like the issue with recess at school is that there's not, like it's not enough. And so I think those of us who speak the nature language and the childhood language, we need to be louder 
we need to start pushing back on behalf of children. And the data is there. I mean, the kids really, they learn better. They take better tests. They recover better from their stress if they're able to run around. Hi. Um, my question has to do with the equity issues about urban landscapes. Uh, we're, we live in Marin. I live in San Anselmo, and we are so blessed. Um, and yet I think we need to look at urban landscapes and what do they have to offer. Uh, I hosted an early childhood educator, um, a famous woman, Lillian Katz, who's interested in the project approach, you know, children studying things of interest. And we were at Marina Middle School in San Francisco, and we walked around the block. And none of us thought about nature in that going around the block. And she said, what about these trees? What about just, let's just make dirt okay again? Um, because all of this engagement is so important. And, and I'm an early childhood educator, so I kind of, you preach it to the choir here, but it's the equity of not just thinking about nature as a place that you go that isn't where you live. That nature is where we live and how in urban landscapes do we help children be in touch with that? Yeah, I mean, I can. Uh, my background before I came to outside was in outdoor ed um, here in Marin, but also with, um, with kids in San Francisco. And uh, all I know is my pragmatic answer was birds tend to do a pretty good job of that. Um, and, and kids tend to like birds, you know, and not a, like they do. They're fun. They fly around. They seem to have a lot of freedom. Um, and then the hawks and other predators, they kill things. And people seem to like that, too. Um, and as I've always said, birds are a wonderful window to nature because they show you where the nature is. Follow a hummingbird. He's going to show you the flowers. You know, follow the seed eaters. They'll take you over to the trees. Follow the shorebirds. They're going to find, you know, the little pockets of water and muddy, nasty creeks. We lived in New York City for a while. And you could find... I mean, the birding in New York was outrageously good, though. So, you know, that was uh, an answer of mine and other people I worked with was we literally used birds because they, they find the nature for you because they need it. And they also make use of the tiniest little plots because they have no choice. And that is, of course, increasing where we find ourselves. So I don't know, Nushin, if you have any answers specifically from you well, know, or either of you. I, I would just say, though, that I, they're definitely – you can see poverty from space. You can see neighborhoods where there is not enough green and, and where the green is not high quality and it's not inviting and it doesn't feel safe. So I think that cities can go a lot farther to make these areas feel welcoming. Um, and um, there's a nonprofit group that I really like, the Trust for Public Land, that is actually mapping park deserts in the way that food deserts have been mapped. Um, with the belief that every child should have a right to live within a 10-minute walk of green space. And so they're actually identifying, you know, if we're going to build a park or improve a, a space, you know, where should we put those dollars to actually reach the most people? And I love that concept. Well, I'm going to chime in here and uh, wrap things up. It's 9 o'clock and our podcast is going to end, but our guests are here for a few minutes. It's been a really powerful night. We do have a book, so if you want a toolkit to take home, they're for sale in the back. And I, I know Florence is going to sign them if you'd like to have them signed. And they're also available if you've got questions. Feel free to come up and, and engage with each other. But uh, thank you all three for coming tonight. This is uh, fantastic. And thank you. Have a great night.